0: Let's turn in God's Word this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We're going to read the first 11 verses of the chapter and then also verse 24. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter it is mad, and of mirth what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I gat me men singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments, in a, and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit and there was no prophet under the sun. Let's read also verse 24. There is nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. On the basis of that passage of Scripture and many others throughout the canon of Holy Writ, the Heidelberg Catechism explains to us Lord's Day explains to us the Eighth Commandment, rather, in Lord's Day 42. Lord's Day 42 is on page 23 in the back of your Psalter. What doth God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only those thefts and robberies, which are punishable by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, ells, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness, all abuse and waste of His gifts. And now the positive, but what doth God require in this commandment? That I promote the advantage of my neighbor In every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further also, that I faithfully labor, so that I may be able to relieve the needy. Beloved of God, remember that we are in the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism, the section that is on our life of gratitude to God for the deliverance He has granted to us in Jesus Christ. He has taken us out of the house of bondage to sin and brought us into His own house, adopted us to be His sons and His daughters, and as grateful children respond to Him. We want to show our gratitude to Thee, O God. That gratitude is not just to spew out of us in any direction. But it is to be a river that flows out of us in the riverbed of the way that our Father, the head of the house, leads us to say, here is how we will show gratitude to Jehovah God. That is, this river of gratitude flows in the riverbed of His law. The first command or first table of that law, or rather, points us to how we show that gratitude directly to Jehovah God in our relationship to him. The second table of that law shows us how we show our gratitude to God in our relation to other people around us. And especially in that second table of the law, the law comes right into every aspect of our life and it says God has something to say about this. The law of God does not remain aloof from us. It does not say, you have these parts of your life that are really your own, but I have something to say about these other parts that are over here. Instead, the law of God, as it were, follows us everywhere we go and has something to say to us. Think of the fifth commandment. Children, The law of God came right into your house, right into your kitchen, right into your living room. And it stood right next to you and said, this is how you interact with your parents. With a heart of obedience, submission to them. Out of love for them and love for God who has redeemed you. It's come, the fifth commandment, to us who labor. It's come right into our workplace. It's come right behind that section of our workplace that says, employees only, don't enter. It's entered right in, gone right through the door to the break room behind or wherever else, the the office, and it has stood right next to us and said, this is how you interact with your employer. The heart of submission to God-given authority. In the sixth commandment, the law of God does not Stay aloof from us. Separate from us. But it's walked right into all of our relationships. Our secret conversations. Whether they are lasting and deep relationships. Or 30 second or a minute relationship at the grocery store when we're buying milk. And it said, don't interact in hatred and anger. But seek the good and of love for the neighbor. The seventh commandment. The law of God walked right into our bedrooms. It didn't knock on the door first and wait for us to answer. It walked right in and said, You use this good gift of God in a pure way before Him. And now in the eighth commandment, He walks right into our place of work again. He comes with us in our grocery shopping. It's right there in our meeting with our banker. It's sitting in the chair next to us at the business meeting. It walks right in to our office when we're balancing the checkbook or doing our taxes, and it commands, Do not steal. Honor me as God. Being content with what I've given you and being a faithful steward of what I have entrusted to your care. From this point of view, beloved, we don't have a private life. We don't. All of it is exposed before that law. It's part of our relationship to Jehovah God. And the child of God does not chafe at that. He's in the house of God. He's adopted as a son of Jehovah God. And he wants all of his life to be unto Jehovah God. Come with me, law, and show me or I need to grow, or I need to change. The second table of the law especially disabuses us of the idea that religion is just sort of a Sunday thing, or a come to church thing. That we can separate our daily lives from this. That our relationship to God is really just on Sunday. The rest of the week he doesn't really care so much, he doesn't see us, he doesn't care what we have to do or say, as long as we come to church on Sunday before Him in this special way, then all is well. The law of God says, no, 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 I am with you. And I am the eye of God. Your relationship to God encompasses every aspect of your life. Nothing is cut off from Him. All of it is taken up in your bond with Him as a son before a father. Even my money, Lord. Yes, your money too. Your money too. Is part of your relationship with him. Are you content? With what he's given you? Are you content with how he's given it to you? Are you content with the way he ordains for you to get. Lord help us, cure us, grow us, take out of us a covetous, and discontent heart, and give us a heart of peace with thy way. The cure for sin against the eighth commandment. You'll notice first the sin, second the cure, and third the result. Thou shalt not steal. That is, you shall not take to yourself something that God has not authorized you to have. How are we going to understand that this morning? How are we going to put some content to this eighth commandment? Well, The Catechism makes a very interesting and important point. When it says that you can't just make sense of the Eighth Commandment by looking at the laws that the state makes with regard to the Eighth Commandment. In other words, you can't derive all of the content that's found in this Eighth Commandment by only asking the question, well, what is against the law of the land regarding this Eighth Commandment? The Catechism says, interestingly, God forbids not only those thefts punishable by the magistrate. It does forbid that. But not only that, but also, and then it goes on to give a more full and complete exposition of the Eighth Commandment, which goes beyond anything that any state has ever decreed. This is an important point the catechism is making, it's an important principle regarding the law of God, and it applies to our understanding of all of the commands of God. You can't understand the law of God merely by looking to what society says about good or evil in respect to these commands, or what the state has done passing laws in these areas. The state is, of course, required To make laws, and it's required to make laws in line with the moral law of God that has been revealed. The law is also revealed in nature. And they are to make laws that are in line with that law of God. But the state is limited. It's limited by its own rebellion. It doesn't even make laws externally that are in line with the law of God. I always just think about the seventh commandment that we talked about last time. The heart of that commandment, or the very explicit aspect of that commandment, is thou shalt not commit adultery. But it's not against the law of the land to commit adultery. And how many other things about the seventh commandment? Does the state say go free ahead? The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, and yet the state says you may kill. You may kill your own child in your own womb. Its ability to make laws in line with the law of Jehovah God is limited by its own rebellion of heart. It's limited, too, by the fact that it is only one sphere in the spheres of authority. If you get drunk in your house, the laws of the land can't do a thing about that. The law of God can, but the law of the state cannot. But as soon as you take that drunkenness on the streets, then they can. That's their sphere. They're limited by the sphere over which they have authority. And then third, the state is limited by the fact that it cannot speak to the heart. It cannot say anything about covetousness in your heart, which is what leads to sins against the Eighth Commandment. But God's law can, and God's law does. And so it's not safe, and it's not right, to simply determine the content of the commands of God on the basis of what is against the law of the state. The catechism rightly points that out here and it's so important because people become desensitized to sin as cultures move away from the law of God revealed. And they start to say things like, well we don't care about that anymore as a society, as a culture. It's not against the law of the land anymore. And we all think that it's okay to do, so why do you guys have a problem with it? Why does the church have an issue with it? And even Christians begin to become desensitized to sin, and to move along with the culture. And that's why it's so necessary that the proclamation of the law of God come in all of its fullness, in all of its truth, out of the church. This is the law of Jehovah God, Objective, true, for all times, in all places. Regarding the Eighth Commandment now in particular, the state still does punish many forms of stealing, don't they? For which we can be thankful. The taking of someone else's property or money, embezzling funds, not meeting contractual obligations, All these things are punishable by law, can be prosecuted and punished if they are proven. But even there, in the realm of the external, the state and its laws don't govern all of even external stealing. As you see, mobs of people go into stores and just haul out thousands upon thousands of dollars of material, never prosecuted. You think about the rebellion of employees against employers. I've never seen a labor union contract that doesn't contractually oblige the employees to go against their employer and forcibly rip out of their hands money. That's a breaking of the Eighth Commandment and not prosecutable by the state. On the other side of it, what about wealthy employers who take advantage of their employees by not giving what they ought for a wage? The foundations of their mansions and estates are built on the backs of their employees. But they don't care one whit for them, perhaps. Neglect them, view their employees as merely numbers. And don't have any care for their persons, Does it care about how they are getting along if they are able to afford taking care of their family? This is not chargeable by the law of the land, but this too is sin against the Eighth Commandment, that I promote the advantage of my neighbor. The law of the land will not charge you for taking your paycheck and for wasting it on whatever you want to waste it on. It will say that's your right But God's law will say something about that. The Eighth Commandment will. The Eighth Commandment forbids all abuse and wastes of His gifts. Wasting what He gives to you is a form of stealing from Him and stealing from others who would benefit from a wiser use of your funds. Think about the Lord Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. After making enough bread out of five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 men plus women, and if there were children there, were children too, what do we read? We read that afterwards there were miraculously so much that they took up 12 baskets full of fragments of bread left. What did they do with those 12 baskets? Interestingly, the gospel accounts tell us. It doesn't say they left them there and it doesn't say nothing about it. It says they took them up. All the accounts are careful to say they took them up and brought them with them all twelve baskets. One basket for each disciple. They didn't just throw it away. They didn't just leave it there to waste. And it would have been tempting to do that. The Lord could miraculously make another twelve baskets just like He just made all of this. The snap of a finger and yet... They took it up and did not waste what God had given to them. Wastefulness, abuse, and waste of his gifts is sin against the eighth commandment. And there's no doubt, all of us are guilty of this. We are a wasteful people and must be convicted by it. The state will punish you for hurting your neighbor. But unless he is in mortal danger, it will not punish you for passing up an opportunity to do him good. But the law of God has something to say about that too. The positive requirement of the Eighth Commandment is that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with. Further also, that I faithfully faithfully labor, so that I may be able to relieve the needy. And the catechism gives that as the positive aspect of the Eighth Commandment, because the Scriptures do. Ephesians 4, verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather positively, this is the positive side of don't steal anymore, let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Galatians 6.10, as we have therefore opportunity, as God gives you opportunities in your life, let us do good unto all men, especially to them who are of the household of faith. And James 4.17, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We so often walk around thinking, what can I draw out of these people for myself? When the eighth commandment calls us instead to walk around thinking, what can I draw out of myself for these people who are around me? And it requires me to be generous and to take the opportunities that God gives to me if I can, if I may. There are, of course, other callings in our life that limit that, even if those opportunities are there. If I can... There are of course things that limit my ability to help, if I may. If my help is actually going to hurt, if it's just going to allow the person to buy more booze or more drugs, that's not helping, but in whatever legitimate way I may and whatever legitimate way I can, then I must not pass up that opportunity. The Eighth Commandment requires that of me. I may plot out a way to steal from my boss who seems to me to be a complete jerk and utterly selfish and in my anger and bitterness and hatred against him I could run through my mind this whole thing of how I'm going to and then in the end say no, no, I'm not going to do that. And as long as I don't do it, the laws of the state have no application to me. But the law of God still does. The Eighth Commandment still does. I could walk out of church this morning and see somebody else's truck that just bought and be meditating and, oh, I wish I could have that. And why am I not yet at a point in my life where I have this much? I thought I was going to be at a point in my life where I would be able to buy that just like nothing and ride it off the lot and be full of covetousness and, and discontent. And the law of the state has nothing to say about it, but the law of God does. Because you see, beloved, this law of God is is so encompassing of everything in our lives that not only does it walk right into our house, into our kitchen, into our living room, into our bedroom, not only does it walk right into our place of of employment behind the employees only sign, it walks right into our mind. And it walks right into our heart. And it says all of this Is part of your relationship to God, to everything in your world. You are a son living before his father. And he takes you mind, heart, and soul, and it's for your good that he does. He takes you mind, heart, body, and soul all unto him, into his house, and to his kingdom. And so that law speaks. Are you covetous in your heart? Discontent in your heart? And the law, it doesn't mince words. It says, you know what that is, don't you? You son, you daughter of God. That's you as a son or daughter. Looking up to your Father and saying, Father, you are a failure as a provider for me. Don't you know that I need this and this and this too? And you haven't given it to me. That's what your discontent heart says. And it says that... The law sees everything. It drills as deep, deeper than we even want to go. And it says, and the reason why you are saying that with your discontent heart to your Father who loves you and has redeemed you and brought you to his own house and given you everything, is because you're saying to him, Father, in spite of everything that you've done for me, don't you know? that I can't be happy unless I have this, or this, or that. You gave it to that guy, but you didn't give it to me. Don't you know? You should have known that there's no way I can be happy unless I have this. That's what the discontent heart is saying. That's what the covetous heart is saying. The the greedy heart is saying. And that's what has to be uncovered in us by the law. And discovered by us in the light of the law as we look at our own selves. As Solomon discovered it in himself himself in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The wise preacher set out to discover where true happiness would be found, where joy would be found in life. And he took his wisdom with him, he says, and he went to pursue everything that men pursue. In verse 1, he says, I went to pursue mirth and pleasure. Just have a riotous time, a raucous good time, as much as I can. Maybe that will grant me happiness and joy. In verse 3, he pursued wine, alcohol, as he saw many people doing this. Maybe this is the key to happiness in life. In verse 4, he pursued great works, great buildings and gardens, things where he could put his name on and say, this is a lasting testament to my greatness. In verses 7 and 8, it's money and possessions, just gathering as much as he could, building as big of a fund as big of a pile of cash as he could. Verse 9, it was fame becoming great in the eyes of men, probably through a combination of everything else, saying, look, I'm going to pursue my own name, my own greatness, so that when people think Solomon, they think of greatness. That will bring me happiness and joy in life. And then in verse 10, he lets the floodgates out, and he says, whatever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I just went after anything and everything. And he comes to the conclusion that there is nothing in any of this that can fill up a soul. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun." He discovered the same thing Adam and Eve discovered. When by the sly and, and manipulative work of the devil, he planted in them a covetous heart, discontent heart, so that they were not satisfied with their relationship with Jehovah God. And he told them, there's something else out there that you don't have, that God is not giving to you, that he's withholding from you, and don't you understand, you can't be happy if you don't have it. He's holding it back from you. And he he worked in them this discontent, this topsy-turvy heart, that, that maybe there's something he's withholding from me that would bring me a greater joy, a greater happiness. And then they went after it, in opposition to his law, his way, thinking, this will bring me joy, this will bring me happiness. And it didn't. It didn't give what was promised. In fact, it took everything away. Have you discovered what Adam and Eve discovered? Have you discovered what Solomon discovered, beloved? If we think that more and more and more will satisfy the soul, that we can stuff all of this into the soul and fill it up, And therefore, let's go beyond the way that God has ordained for us to have things from Him. We're fools. Utter fools. And right there is the root of sin against the eighth commandment. This is why people cheat on taxes, this is why people steal. This is why contractors add another piece to the work order to get more money even though it wasn't necessary. My happiness will be found in more. More than what God has ordained for me. More than what he has given me. He's not good to me. He's a failure as a provider. Doesn't he know my happiness depends on more? You have a good work ethic. I hope you do. Good. I'm glad you do. You should. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But do you have a good work ethic because of this? Because you're driven by a heart of of discontent and covetousness and greed and thinking that if I just have more, I will finally be happy. If I just reach this point, then I will arrive at peace in my life. I will be able to stuff this into my soul and be filled. There's nothing wrong with having more. There's nothing wrong with setting goals, with having desires for your life. But don't think that this is what will fill you up, that this is what will satisfy the soul. It's vanity. From that point of view, vanity and vexation of spirit. And out of the discontent that we all feel at times and know is there, do we not cry out, O God, rid us of this foolishness. I'm no better than my father, Adam, and my mother, Eve. Grant me contentment, Lord, and peace in thy way with me. Contentment is the cure for sin against the eighth commandment. Contentment is a gift from Jehovah God. Contentment is peace with one's lot, Whatever God has decided that lot may be. Unbelievers can have a shell of this, like they have a shell of many different things, but they can't truly have it. Contentment is a gift from God to His people in Jesus Christ, to know that my Father is for me, to be at peace. And rest, knowing that I am in His sovereign hands and all of my life is in His hands, and that He is a good Father who's redeemed me, brought me into His house, and will determine what is best and wisest for me. There is contentment. Here are three tests for us for contentment this morning, beloved. Three tests. Number one, Can I pursue opportunities in work, can I work hard, can I have ambitions, even goals for my life, without neglecting the other callings in my life that don't bring me a paycheck or greater recognition or greater advancement on the ladder? That will say something. About the state of the heart and contentment. Number two, maybe I can say I generally pass that one. Not perfectly, but I pass it generally. I work hard. I have my ambitions, my goals, but I don't let that crowd my other callings in life. That don't bring me a paycheck. don't bring me recognition. And the second test would be this. What about when God in His sovereignty closes the door on something that you have been working for? Something you have had ambition about. What does it do to you? Of course, there's a, a shock of that and in a time of where I have to get back to leveling out, but do you level out? Or does it fill you with discontent, bitterness toward him, and create a wall between you and your God? that betrays a discontent heart? The three: Are you tempted? to go outside of the particular ways that he has ordained to distribute to people the goods and the money that he grants to them. If I'm tempted to go outside the lane that the Eighth Commandment draws for how I get more goods and more money as a means under his sovereign distribution betrays a discontent heart. He of course is the sovereign distributor. It's all His. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord, the Lord's and the fullness thereof and everything that's in it. It's all His and that includes everything that is in our houses and in our barns and in our garages and wherever else. It's all his ultimately. Even as he distributes it, it's his. And he determines who gets what in this life. And he distributes it in four ways, four legitimate ways. First, by calling us to work. and saying, that will be a means by which I will distribute to you, work hard, work responsibly. Even then, He sovereignly gives gifts to us to be able to work. He sovereignly gives opportunities. He sovereignly gives us parents who give us a work ethic, etc., etc. He's still at the end of the day in control even of that, but this means work. This is the chief means. There's some who can't work, of course. And then they must be given through other means, generosity. there's some who can work but won't. The Second Thessalonians three verse 10 says, "These shall not eat. Whoever can work but refuses shall not eat. Not those who can't work, that's different. But who can, but won't work." is first. Good God-given work. Second, there is legitimate investments. The Lord in the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, speaks of investing a talent and receiving his own with usury, with interest. That's a legitimate way to gain money and goods from Jehovah God. Of course, there's another form of usury that's condemned by the Eighth Commandment, that's a sinful taking advantage of somebody else, but simply investments with return are not discounted by the law of Jehovah God, are a legitimate way that he distributes goods and money. Third, gifts from others out of their generosity, whether that be parents to children, or grandchildren, or beyond that, gifts are legitimate. Fourth, there is the diaconate of the church, a God-given means of distribution of money and goods to those who will to work, but either cannot or cannot, though they do work, get enough. God has set up an office in the church whose calling is for this to give, to be a legitimate means to distribute from Him the sovereign God and Father goods and money to His people. There's no shame in it. And the child of God must be content with these four avenues alone as the righteous and God-ordained means by which we receive good and money from his hand. And contentment, the content heart says, I will be. And I'm not going to go beyond that. Even though the government misuses my money, I'm not going to rob from them. Even though I could in this other illegitimate way and get more, I'm not going to. He set this way and this way only. I'll trust Him. I know He cares for me. I know I'm safe in His sovereign hands. And I know that my happiness is not found in getting more than what He has sovereignly willed to me through these means. But my happiness is found ultimately in Him. My relationship to Him my knowledge of Him as my Father and all of the marvelous implications of that and His fatherly goodness to me to give me what He has determined for me in this life. I am at peace with that. What He gives are what He withholds through those means because I know that He has already been so generous in the cross of Jesus Christ and He's generous to me who deserves nothing. That's the source of the content heart. The wise preacher Solomon, in verses 17 and 18, we didn't read that, but he comes to the point where he says he hates life. When he gives in to all that greed, it finds there's, there's an empty void. It doesn't fill one up. But then in verse 24, what we did read, he comes back to say, you know what? Life is to live within this relationship with Jehovah God and to simply enjoy whatever he decides to give in the right way, in the lanes of his law before him. Whether it's a lot or a little, and simply to receive it as gifts from him in my relationship to him and have peace in your soul and to let go of pursuing anything more. Contentment comes, beloved, in being satisfied with Him and what He decides to give. I still have my ambitions, I still work hard, I still seek my goals, but all under this and within the bounds of this. And knowing that He will, in the end, determine, and what He determines is good. Sometimes we look for contentment by looking first to the circumstances around us, And then saying, if only I can manipulate this the way that I want, then I will find contentment. But it's first. Contentment goes to the cross. And there sees a father who has cared for me, body and soul, in such a marvelous way. And he's wrapped my whole life up there upon the cross in deliverance from destruction. And he's given me hope. And He's put me in a position where I may live in His world in a right way to His glory. Look to Jesus, congregation. See Him there. Bearing your sin, even your discontent and covetous and greedy heart upon Himself. Why do you think His Father took everything away from Him there? He had nothing. He took away his friends, his disciples forsook him, he cut him off from his own mother, woman behold thy son, behold thy mother, he took away what little clothing he had hanging there upon the cross, and he took away what was dearest to him, the sense of his father's love for him so that he was left vanquished with nothing. Because he was bearing there the curse of God for your seeking to have everything. And there, earned for you everything that really matters. And the goodness of God to you in every way. and Knowing that, my heart is at peace. There's a, there's a level, there's a... the topsy-turvy becomes calm. I am in my Father's hand. And instead of trying to draw everything around to fill me up, I'm filled up and I begin to flow this way out of myself to others. For the sake of this, Christ. Like the women who followed the Lord when he was upon the earth, of whom Luke 8 verse 3 says they ministered to Jesus out of their substance. Isn't that what you want to do? Go forth from this place and in all the different ways that he gives you to minister to him out of what he's granted to you through all these legitimate means. All for Jesus, for his glory, for his honor. As a son brought into his house by his grace. Amen. Father, add thy blessing to the proclamation of thy word. And strengthen our hearts and lives by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.